Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're in a study and we're looking at the most misused, abused, misapplied verses in the Bible. And today we're going to look at a verse that is very, very popularly quoted around the, the, the time of the National Day of Prayer. You will hear this verse a lot. I, I hear this verse a lot on uh, Moody, 91.1. A lot, of, a lot of people will come on there and, and will quote this verse. And the dialogue, you've probably heard it, but the dialogue will go something like this. America is in spiritual and moral ruin or decline. And if we as a nation would just humble ourselves and pray, if we would just turn our ways and seek the face of God, if we turn from our wicked ways, then God would heal our land. And uh, amen, amen, if it were only true. And uh, there are some beautiful truths to this passage, but I, it, it is, this is a very popularly abused passage. There are great truths in this verse. There are great things that apply to us. Unfortunately, it just doesn't apply to us the way that we wish it applied to us and the way that we use it to it apply to us. Um, I mean, if you read this verse, again, if you take this verse out of context, if you just rip 2 Corinthians seven fourteen out of its context and you only read this verse, it pretty much guarantees what we use it as. I, I have heard this passage, I have heard chapter 6 of Chronicles, to make the point, they have used, said that, hey, the nation that comes from far away is America. You know, and uh, we were in a restaurant, my wife and I were in a restaurant years ago with another couple, and, and there, was a, uh, there was a plaque on the wall that basically was stating the case that Barack Obama was fulfilled biblical prophecy, that, and here's the, here's the reason for it. Again, if you take verses out of their context... If you, if you just rip a verse out and only look at that verse, you can do a lot of things with the Word. And the question I want us to address today is, is does this verse promise, guarantee what we say it as, what we use it as? Is, is it just a case where we need to humble ourselves more? Is that the issue? Is it a case where we just need to turn more? It is, does this verse promise spiritual and revival and spiritual and moral healing in any land wherever believers are? If not, then what does this verse have for us? Why, why do we even read it at all? Some of you may be asking, well, if it's not that, then why read it all? I want to answer that question too today. Is there any use for this? Is there any use for us today? For this verse, I want us to answer that question as well, and I, and I, and I intend to, and I think I will. I, I want to approach this passage the same way that we've approached every other passage. We've looked at Matthew 7, 1, do not judge lest you be judged. We've looked at Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered, there I am there, and I am there in your midst. We've looked at Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and to give you a future. We've looked at Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Today, we're going to look at 2 Chronicles 7.14. And read. let's just read that verse. And you'll see um, how this is, uh, this is taken. The first clue, just, just, I'm just saying, the first clue that you ought to be careful in quoting this verse is it begins with and. It's not even the beginning of a sentence. That right there tells you that this is something bigger than just this one verse. The, again, it would be like if you wrote a letter, and I went into that letter, and I just plucked one sentence out of that letter, and I tried to make a case based on the whole letter, based on that word. This sentence begins with a lowercase and. I'm not an English major. I'm terrible at the English language. But I know that's not the beginning of a sentence. He says, and... My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. 
That, that's the verse we're going to look at today. What, what, is, what is that verse saying? What is it promising? Who's it to? What's it about? And again, I, I want to approach this verse the way that we've approached all the others in this series. And I want to do, the first point is going to, in, is going to be in regards to the greater context of, of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. I say 1st and 2nd Chronicles because in the, in the original Hebrew Bible, this was one letter. In our Bible, we have divided them up. Originally, these would not have been divided up. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they would have been read as one letter. So the first, the first thing I want to do is address that, the, the context of 1st uh, first and 2nd Chronicles, or the Chronicles, if you will. The second point on your handout is going to be specifically regard to what is going on in verse 14, this immediate context of verse 14. The third point you'll see on your handouts there, and by the way, the reason why we don't have Horizons today is they had some computer printer issues at main campus, and they were coming out yellow. And so we're just like, okay, we're not, we're not going there. So the, none of the colors were working. That's why it's in black and white today, so forgive me. But the third point there on your handout has to do with, with, unfortunately, what's the most important thing to us and where we run to in the Bible first, more than anything, is we want to know, well, how does this apply to us? And if we're honest, that's, that's really the way we come to the Bible. What does this mean for me? And, and I want to address that. That's not the way that we approach the Bible first and foremost. And so, so without further delay, the first point you'll see in your handout. And again, this is dealing with the context of the entire letter, First and Second Chronicles. The book of Chronicles was written to remind God's people of their history and show that throughout their history that their God had showed himself to be a covenant-keeping God in spite of their sin. What the writer is doing in Chronicles is he is recounting for Israel really their history. If you were to go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 1, the first umpteen ver- chapters of First Chronicles, is all, it's all genealogy. And where does it begin? It begins with Adam. He, he, they were, these books were written, this letter rather, was written sometime after the Hebrews returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. It was probably written by Ezra. Many people believe Ezra wrote it. And what the author does is he surveys the nation of Israel. He surveys their history under the sovereignty of a great and mighty God, of their God. Of, if, if we were going to divide it up, David is the, really the, the main emphasis of First Chronicles. Solomon and the temple get most of the, 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 the space, if you will, in Second Chronicles. But they're the key chapters. They're the key figures, rather, the key characters. They were the great kings who ruled Israel. Chronicles, again, you see on your handout, Chronicles, again, setting the context for the whole letter. Chronicles' purpose is to show that the true glory of the Hebrew nation was found in their covenant relationship to God. It was found that they were a covenanted people, that God had chosen them. That's key. God is a covenant keeping God, and he operates on the basis of his covenants. You go all the way back to Genesis 12, you see the Abrahamic covenant. That sets the stage for God's dealing with Israel. He says, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed, and I'm going to give you a blessing. In Genesis 15, he reiterates that. All throughout the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant... All of those covenants really, in in large part, ratify and show God's faithfulness in keeping the Abrahamic covenant. But that is foundational. God covenants to be Israel's people. He chooses them. You see in Deuteronomy, He chooses them. They were a nobody. And He makes them a somebody by simply choosing them. And He basically says, no matter what, no matter what, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. We, we saw that in Jeremiah 29.11. The beauty of Jeremiah 29.11 is this. Uh, God is saying, you're going to go into captivity because of your sin for 70 years. I will be faithful to my covenant and I will be waiting on you on the backside of your 70 years. That's how good God is. That's the covenant loyalty, the covenant keeping 
Lamentations 3.23 says that your mercies are new every morning, that his loving kindnesses, that word there is kessed. It, 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 means, it means covenant loyalty. It says, lay never cease, never cease. That's, the, that's what the, the author of Chronicles is reminding them here. Throughout history, throughout their history, God has been a covenant-keeping God. And you, you'll see on your handout, I already kind of tipped my hat, but First and Second Chronicles record the history of the kings through really two lenses. The first is regard to the Mosaic Covenant. The first thing that is huge is the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant that God made with Israel after he brought them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. And in this covenant, God sets apart Israel, again, as a special nation. And the terms of that covenant go just like this. If you obey me, there are specific blessings for obedience. If you disobey me, here are the specific consequences for your disobedience you can turn to deuteronomy 26 through 28 and it reads exactly like that there are blessings for obedience there are consequences for disobedience that's the mosaic law first five books of the bible genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy written by written by moses it's the law the mosaic covenant the second covenant though that chronicles is writing through is the davidic covenant the davidic covenant this is the covenant which God made with David. And David, God basically covenants with David and he says this, Your throne will endure forever. Your throne will endure forever. So David, David sets out to build a house for God, a temple for God, and God does not allow him to do that, but instead promises, Look, your throne will endure forever and your son Solomon is going to build this temple. God remains faithful to his covenants. Even, even when nation of Israel is divided, when the northern tribes of Israel are divided from the southern tribes of Judah, God keeps his promise. All the way to what we'll see that the Davidic covenant was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He came from the lineage of David. That's why Matthew and Luke, when we read these genealogies, I understand the tendency is to pass over them, let's be honest. When you get to genealogies, that's like a free, free Bible study day. It's like on to chapter 2. But, but you're missing out. Again, those genealogies are reminders of God's faithfulness. I mean, if you were to, if you were to embark on 1 Chronicles being your Bible study quiet time, guess what? Chapter 1, genealogy. Chapter 2, genealogy. Chapter 3, genealogy. Chapter 4, genealogy. Chapter 5, genealogy. Chapter 6, genealogy. Chapter 7, genealogy. Guess what? You're going to be to chapter 10 on day 2. You're, but again, those names mean something. They show God's faithfulness. That in spite of tremendous sin, in spite of tremendous sin, God was faithful. First and Second Chronicles cover a history of the, of the nation of Israel, of Hebrew, the Hebrew people from creation. First Chronicles 1.1 mentions creation. From the creation of man all the way to the Hebrews' return from exile, Second Chronicles 36. It's their entire history. Ezra, uh, let's assume he's the writer. Most people believe he is. he is. He is chronicling for them their history. And here's what he's showing, that God has been faithful to fulfill every single word to you that he has ever spoken. God was faithful to do it. In spite of your sin. You'll, you'll notice, we'll notice even eventually here in, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God basically says, when you sin... When you sin and I, and, I do, and I deal with you, I'll still be faithful. He knows they're going to sin. And he stays faithful. If, if, you were to study, if you were to study Chronicles, you would see some specifics that, that, that the chronicler, that Ezra highlights to show God's faithfulness. He tells you in First, first and Second Chronicles that there would be a, the anointing of a righteous king. Well, guess what? Deuteronomy 17 promises that. 
that there will be establishment of a temple where God's name will dwell. Well, guess what? Deuteronomy 12 verses 5 through 14 told them that. That there will be prosperity when Israel obeys God under David and Solomon. Guess what? Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 4 told them that. That there will be exile when you disobey. Well, guess what? Deuteronomy 28 verses 49 and following warned them of that. That there, but that there will be restoration to the land. Well, guess what? You go to Deuteronomy 30, God promised them, I'm going to boot you out of this land, but I'll restore you. Faithfulness. And what Chronicles shows is a record of God's long-standing faithfulness to His people, even when, even when they were not faithful to Him. God is a covenant-keeping God. And you think about that. This remnant is returning from Babylonian captivity. And think about the need to be reminded of who you are, the need to be reminded of your history, the need to be reminded of God's covenant keeping, His loyalty, His, his loving kindness, His faithfulness. That their, that their existence as a people, their, their living was based upon the goodness of their God, but also their loyalty to Him. He's basically saying, look, all these things that happened to you, they're because you sinned and you turned your back on God. And He was faithful not only to bless you, but He was faithful to punish you, just as He said He would. Both the punishment and the blessing go back to His loving kindness, His faithfulness. They would also need to learn from their mistakes. He's saying, look, look at your past, learn from your mistakes, and set a course for your future that doesn't involve the same mistakes that your forefathers made. That's, that's the context, the greater context of First and Second Chronicles. And what the writer says is this, and you see it on your handout, throughout the history, what he highlights is this. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, here's what he shows you, that God cares immensely for his people, even to the point that he disciplines them because of their sin. Well, guess what Hebrews 12, 7 and following says, that God loved, God disciplines what? Those whom he loves. And he says, if you don't get disciplined, why aren't you being disciplined? He says, because you're an illegitimate child. You're not really God's people. They would need to be reminded that God is long-suffering and faithful, but also this, he judges sin. And simply because they were the people of God, simply because today you're a believer, that doesn't give you a license to live however you want and presume upon God's goodness. He's, he, and specifically in the Old Testament, this was a big deal. He, you presume upon God's blessings and you turn your back, there will be tremendous discipline. That's why, that's why your fathers got thrown out of the land. That's why a whole generation died in Canaan. God brought them to the edge of Canaan, the promised land. They send spies into the land. Ten come back with a good report, I mean a bad report. Ten come, two come back with a bad report. They, in, in, in contrary to God's word, who said, I am giving you this land, they believed the ten spies. And guess what? An entire generation died in the wilderness. Why? Because of unbelief. You can go to Hebrews chapter 2 and 3 and see the exact same thing. They died because of unbelief. There were consequences for their disobedience. And what the writer of, what the writer of Chronicles is, is, is saying this. He's talking to these people who have returned. And he's saying this. Here, for your future, here's three things I want you to do. You see them on your handout. Love God deeply. Love God deeply. But not only love God deeply, worship God purely. Worship God purely. And not only love God deeply and worship God purely, but obey God completely. And what writer of what the writer in, in Second Chronicles, if you will, what he's doing, what you'll notice, and this becomes huge, the writer writes this specifically looking at everything in their life from the aspect of the temple. The temple is the main player besides Solomon who built it. That is the main player in 2 Chronicles. After the temple was built, it was sometimes neglected, it was sometimes refurbished, but it was always the most important building in Israel. And that is the greater context of, of Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 7 fits into that context. 
It's dealing with the temple. It's dealing specifically with the nation of Israel. You say, why was the temple so important? Because that's where the Ark of the Covenant resided, and that's where the presence of the Lord was in the temple. And what he's saying is this. Even in the midst of your sin, God has been faithful, and that's what the writer is writing to. That's the context. So, so then that's the big wide-angle uh, wide lens. Well, let's narrow that lens down to look at 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. And that's point two on your handout. He, he's making it very clear that God is faithful, that God is loyal. Look at what he says in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, you see on your handout, God is responding to a specific prayer that Solomon offered to the Lord by reminding Solomon of God's covenant loyalty. So, so what we see on the surface, again, this appears to be a great verse that you can just pluck out and say, oh, well, I'm a believer, I'm, I'm God's, I'm the church, I'm part of God's people, I've been grafted in by, by faith, by grace, through faith into the, the people of Israel, you know, we're, we're the church, we've been grafted into God's people, well, certainly this means me. Well, you know what, I, Amer clearly America is God's chosen land today, I mean, we're the best on the block, so clearly, clearly this is, if, if this is where God's people, somehow we think that, like, all the Christians only live in America, and, and that we're this Christian nation, well, certainly then the area of the land where we live has got to, be my, got to be God's land. And, and there couldn't be further from the truth. Th this verse is rich with great spiritual truths. Do we need humility? All throughout the Bible there's called humility. I, humility. I think it's James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but He does what? He gives grace to the humble. Do we need to pray? Absolutely. 1 Thessalonians 5, this is the will of God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. No doubt. No doubt. Pursuit of God? Absolutely. You see that. Repentance? 1 John, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim to have not sinned, we lie and deny the truth. And God is not. Uh, Clearly, there's a call for repentance. This is an awesome verse. But what it really does, but really what does it promise? That's the question. And to whom does it promise these things? Is this a general verse? Is this a general promise? Or was this a specific promise made to a specific person at a specific time? Similar to what we saw in Jeremiah 29, 11. And the context, when you drill down, the context that we find this verse is that Solomon, that's David's son, has built the temple. Okay, he has built the temple. Chapters 2 through 6 of what we call Second Chronicles show that Solomon has prepared to build the temple. He's built the temple. He's finished the temple. The Ark of the Covenant has been brought into the temple, which symbolizes the Lord's presence. And in chapter 6, Solomon prays an amazing prayer over that temple. Again, why the temple was such a big deal is because to them, to Israel, that's where God's presence dwelt. I mean, you can imagine, this is a huge moment for Israel. The temple is constructed. God has fulfilled His promise. He's fulfilled His covenant to David. I mean, this is a huge moment. You can imagine, put yourself in their shoes. This is a big deal. And Solomon has asked the Lord to be attentive to his prayers and the prayers of his people offered in the temple. Solomon has asked the Lord to act as judge of his people. He's asked the Lord to forgive their sin. He has asked the Lord to relent from divine judgment when his people repent. He has asked for the Lord even to listen to the prayers of foreigners who are in the temple that, and that God would bless them in times of war. And he says, if God, and I'm just summarizing chapter 6, he says, God, if my people are ever taken over in war because of their sin, if they repent, will you please forgive them, maintain them as a people, and bring them back? That's the context for chapter 7. Chapter 7 is God's response to Solomon's prayer. He's responding to Solomon's prayer. And imagine for this for a moment. There's an offering on the altar. Fire comes down from heaven. Fire consumes the offering. 
The glory of the Lord fills the temple, it says. The, the people understandably fall down on their faces. They, they worship the Lord. Imagine this. Then they all go back to their homes. Can you imagine the joy and the awesomeness when they all went back to their homes? Overflowing with joy. I mean, this is a high water mark for Israel. Some time passes, we're not sure. It says in verse 11 of chapter 7, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace, whether that was closer together or, or farther apart. Anyway, some time has passed. Listen to me. And one night, one night, the Lord appears to Solomon and answers his prayer. Look at verse 12. Start in verse 12 to get the context of chapter 7. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If, listen to this, if I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, you see the context? If all of that happens and my people do what? Pray and humble themselves. And my people who are called by my, humble, my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered where? In this place. This is talking about the temple. This is dealing with the temple. What we see is the immediate context for verse 14, for 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And let me give you, I, I thought about even having like a, a quiz time, but that wouldn't constitute a sermon, and, and I don't want anybody to go discouraged, but I just, to put these things to use, I'm going to give you some specifics so you see what's going on here. Who's being addressed? Say it out loud. Solomon. Solomon. That's A. Solomon is the one being addressed. Where is the place that is referred to in this passage? Where is the place? The temple, that's B. You're doing good so far. Sound like my son. I asked my son how his homework go. He says, well, we just checked it on our own in class. I'm like, that's a recipe for disaster. Who's the promise regarding? America or Israel? Israel. Israel. Guess what? There's no church in this day. There ain't no America. They ain't exist. This, this is a promise, listen to me, about blessing and obedience and warning for disobedience regarding Israel, not Christians in America. Israel would have immediately recognized the covenant language here because they would have known Deuteronomy 26 through 28. They would immediately have recognized the covenant language. Everything about this passage is covenant-oriented. Covenant whose land is it? D on your handout. The land that is promised is Israel's land. It's Israel's land. It's not, you know, this land is my land, this land is your. No. Uh, no. We don't sing that song here. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. You're specifically glad that I don't sing that song now after you just heard me song. If I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Look, it's a physical restoration of the land that God promised. This is a part, again, of the Abrahamic covenant. God, there is a, there is a section of land in the Middle East that belongs to God's people. And God is saying, you're, you're, it's yours. I'll restore it. I, I, I say all that to say, do you see the specificity here with this verse? This is not a general promise. This is not generally talking. No, no different than when we saw Jeremiah 29, 11. It is, not, it is specific in every single regard. No other nation can claim that verse. Israel can claim that verse. No other nation has the temple where God dwelt. Israel did. And here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. We, we go to verse 14 and we pluck this verse out and we say, well, if America does this, we'll go down to verse 19. 
Look, look what it says here. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you, and this house which I have conservated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among the peoples. Should we live in fear that God's going to uproot America? If there was ever a time for God to uproot America, many of you would say we're long past that. Should we, should, why doesn't anybody quote verse 19? I mean, should we be expecting to be sent to another land? Funny how we take the, you know, we can't, we, we, we can't become this name it, claim it kind of people. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm talking about a name and a claim it approach to the Bible where we pick and choose the verses we like and we ignore the ones we don't like. We, we don't study the Bible buffet style. I'll take this blessing and this blessing and this blessing, but you know what? I don't want that curse and I don't want that curse and I don't want that one for my disobedience. I just want the blessing. And that, that's how we come up with these ideas when we, when, we, when we come up with this buffet style to Bible study. Listen, the principles of humility and repentance and prayer and forgiveness and healing, are they still relevant today? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see that throughout the New Testament with regards to the character of God. What I'm saying is this, and what Scripture is saying is this, that the binding promise of this verse was for another people in another land. No other nation, you see it on your handout, can claim that promise. And I realize it can be shocking, and I'm not trying to be cute. I'm just saying this, America is not God's chosen land or people. I'm just telling you. God is building a spiritual people today. There are believers in Esther and her family's homeland of Nigeria. There are believers all over, all over this world in Canada, South America, Central America. I've visited and worshipped with Christians in China. They're all over. They had a specific land in this time. This is not, this is not for America. Should we, pray for its, for, should we pray for our country and its leaders Absolutely. To not do so would be disobedient. Listen to me in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, 1 Timothy, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Listen, for kings and all who are in authority, so that they lead a tranquil and quiet life and in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Listen, regardless of whether we like, regardless if you like the officials in office, from the lowest to the highest, you better be praying for them. To not do so is disobedient. Disobedient. You go to Romans 13. The, the, the individuals that are in charge of our government are there under the sovereignty of God. You know what God says to do? He says, obey them. Obey them. So long as they don't call you to do anything that's contrary to the word of God. He says, you know what your, your job is to do? Is to obey them. And to pray for them. But ultimately, listen. Ultimately, as believers today, the church, we're members of another kingdom. We, we, we have a different country. Listen to me, in Hebrews 12, listen to what in Hebrews 12, 28 it says. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. If you go back to eleven sixteen, listen to this, it says, but all these, starting verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, listen to me, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. If you go to Philippians 3.20, it says that our citizenship is in heaven. Ultimately, as believers, listen to me, we're not of this country. This is not our home. This is not ultimately the country or the land 
that we belong to. You look at Revelation 21, there's a new heavens and a new earth that's going to come down. God's going to renovate this whole thing and go back to Genesis 1. That's where you and I believers are going to spend eternity. Not on a cloud floating, playing a harp with new bodies, glorified bodies on a new heaven and a new earth. And that's our country. That's our country. And until that day comes, God says, you work faithfully to share the gospel and do you to be about God's kingdom, not your own kingdom. That's our work. To pray and to seek God's kingdom, not our own kingdom. That's, that's why we're here as believers. To seek that which is above. To seek the progress of God's kingdom. To advance God's kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, if, if that's what this verse teaches, if, that's, if that was for Israel, then how does it apply to us or does it apply at all? And that, that's what I want to answer in number three. Number three on your handout is this. We have been given the history of God's dealings with the world and His people in order to fuel our hope in the character and, character and faithfulness of God. Listen, hear me carefully here, because I don't, I don't, I, I, this happens regularly. People will leave here and say, you said that, and I'm like, I did not say that. You heard that, but I did not say that. And please don't go tell people I said that, because I did not say that. Listen, everything in the Bible is not about you and me. Everything in the Bible is not about you, and it's not about me. I know that's going to shock some of us. You and I are not the central figure, the central character of the Bible. And listen, all of us in our sinfulness, we approach the Bible with this narcissistic, individualistic approach that is me-centered rather than God-centered. And we come to the passage, and we the first question that we have a tendency to ask is this. What does this verse mean about me? That's the wrong question. That's not the right question to ask. The Bible is first and foremost about God. Listen to me. God is the hero of the Bible. He is the central character of the Bible. The first question that we ask when we come to Bible study is, what does this teach me about God? And what does a holy, perfect, awesome, sovereign, immutable, omniscient, omnipresent, all of that God, what does, it, what does then, what does He demand of me? But it starts with God. In response to who God is, then that, that dictates me. Every, when you read the Word of God, especially in the New Testament, almost all the writers will, will put forth who God is, what He's done, His character. He'll put forth the theology, He'll put forth the gospel, and then He'll say, look, in view of what God has done first, you do this. My life is a response to God's grace. It's a response to His loving kindness. It's a response to His faithfulness. It's a response to His character. And, my, and our hope flows from God's character. I have hope because of the character of God. L listen to Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times, that's talking about, that would have been the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the same thing. All scriptures are God-breathed and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God will be thoroughly equipped. When we read the scriptures, we get hope. Why? Because the same God that was loyal and faithful to Israel in spite of their sin is the same God that will be loyal and faithful to you and me in spite of our sin. He says in Hebrews 13, 5, that's why he says that, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know what fuels my hope? Is when I look at Israel in the midst of their great sin and spiritual adultery and all that other stuff, God never left them or forsook them. Guess what? That gives me hope. That the character of God then is the same character of God today, and he'll never leave me or, or forsake me. And when we read the Old Testament, when we read 2 Chronicles seven fourteen passages like this, I, I want to give us a few truths real quickly and get us out of here. That, that we learn to fuel our hope. You say, well, it's, if that verse is not about me, it's useless. That's a wrong approach. Th th this verse and other verses are so rich in the Old Testament theologically. I, I want to give us a few of them. This could go on and on, but I go long enough, and 
you guys know I can preach for only 30 minutes. I did it at main campus, so I'm trying to do that here. So, A, look at A. These are truths that come to the surface from the Old Testament that fuel our hope. No, look, the first one is this. No matter what your past is like, no matter what it is comprised of, your sin or that of others, God is able to forgive you and is able to work it out for good. Romans 5.20 tells me this. Where sin abound, guess what more abounded? Grace. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. When you read Abraham, and Abraham is, is trying to accomplish God's promises and purposes on his own by having an, a, an inappropriate well, relation, a disobedient relationship with Hagar. And God still honored his promises. When you read stories about Joseph and his brothers who are, are, are jealous of him and they sell him into slavery and, and really want to kill him. And God sovereignly watches that man and protects him to the point where when his brothers and family are about to starve and have nothing to eat, Joseph is standing in the perfect place at the perfect time with the perfect sustenance to provide for the very ones who sold him into slavery. And Genesis 50, 20 says this, You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Think about Joseph saying that. His brothers sold him into slavery, wanted to kill him. His whole life spent away from his father, whom he loved deeply, away from his family. It was not a fun ride. Falsely accused, you know what Joseph did? He saw God's sovereign hand. He said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Such a time as this, right now, when you look at Israel and their great sin, when you look at Paul and how he persecuted Christians, and then in Acts 8 and Acts 9, God confronts him on the, on the Damascus road and converts him. I mean, your sin, when you, all of a sudden, when you come to my sin and your sin, you realize, hold on, God is able. God is able. You look at Romans 14, 4, Romans 4.18, where it says, Abraham, in hope against hope, Abraham believed that God was able to fulfill that promise. In hope against hope, he believed. You read Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more exceedingly beyond everything we ask or even think of, to him be the glory and forever and ever. That's when you read the Old Testament, you see that God was able to do what he wanted to do. Hebrews 7.25, the same. Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by that outstretched hand. Nothing is too difficult for you. All of a sudden, when you get to Luke 1, 37, and God's going to birth his son through a, through a virgin, and it says nothing will be impossible with God. Why? you got a whole Old Testament that showed that. Hope. Nothing is too difficult for God. But, but not only that God is able, you see on your handout, you learn to God, seek God's presence more than anything else. You learn to seek God's presence more than anything else. You know, all this talk about national revival and all that, what are you doing individual to, individually to start revival in your own life? Revival in your own home? That's where it'll start today. The reality is this, even if nationally or, or internationally, Things don't change and go back to the Word of God. Guess what? It don't matter because it's about, it's about me and my pursuit of God and response to what God's... And me and going and seeking and saving. I don't, I don't judge God's faithfulness based on my circumstances. I judge my circumstances based on God's faithfulness. And I'm going to pursue God no matter what. And change may come, but guess what? It starts with us as individuals. And what are you doing in your home? to light a fire in your kids' lives that they'll be world shakers or, or are they going to go away? They're going to go along with the crowd or are they going to love the Lord enough to stand up against the crowd? Are they going to just try to be cool according to the world's standards or are they going to try to love the Lord no matter what? Are they going to pursue God as long as it's cool or are they going to be like Job when Job says, though you slay me, I will trust you? What, what kind of kid are you raising? It starts with us. It starts with the church. I read a quote this week that just struck me, and I meant to put it on your handout. I don't know if I did or not. I meant to. I highlighted it, but I think I deleted it on your handout. Listen to what this guy Eckhart said. He said, long for God. 
He said, and if you do not long for God at this moment, long for the longing of God. You hear that? Long for God. And if you're, if you're sitting there right now and you say, I don't long for God, how, how about this? Long for the longing of God. Pray that God renew your, renew your spirit and create a steadfast spirit in you like David said in, 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 in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Seek God's presence. Desire more than anything else to spend time. You say, how do you do that, Chris? You do that through the Word, through studying the Word. You do that through prayer. And you do that through what we're doing right here. That's why Hebrews 10, we'll talk about this on October 2nd, I think. It says, says 25, and do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. We come here to be spurred on. We come here to, to, to be encouraged to seek God's presence. Not only that, things that we, our reward, listen to me, when we read the Old Testament, our reward, we realize real quick, our reward is not of this world. It's not here in America. Our reward, our, our, the reward of salvation is God. We get God. It's God. We get eternity with God. I pray that that would drive our, our every moment, that, that, that we get God. Listen to what 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Is that you? See on your handout. Look at see. Not only God is able, but see God's presence. When God says that he's going to do something, he always does it. Always. You read the Old Testament, you study the Old Testament, you see this. God is faithful. I mean, we could go on and on in verses that, that show God's faithfulness. They're, they're everywhere. I wrote down just a few for the sake of time. I'll read Psalm eighty-six, fifteen. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. In, in Psalm 36, 5, he says the same thing regard, regarding his, his faithfulness. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. If you were to look at 1 Corinthians 1, 9, you would see the same thing. God is faithful. James 1, 17-19 says that with God there is no variation or shifting of shadows. Has he said it and will he not do it? He didn't change. He's immutable. He doesn't change. His character remains the same. D, you see D on your handout. Not only when you, when you read the Old Testament, you see this, that God's holiness is the way to great joy. In, in contrast to what the world puts forth as a means of great joy and the way to great joy, when you look at the Word of God, it, it tells you God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not out to squash your fun. God is out for your greatest joy. And your joy is in Him and living for Him. Listen to Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures evermore. Is that the way you see God? Or do you see Him as a cosmic killjoy? Do you see it as just a bunch of rules? Or do you see a loving Father who is offering His children wisdom and to avoid life's snares and all the hangouts? Holiness is the way to great joy. It's not what phone you have or what car you drive or where you live or the clothes you wear or all that other stuff that, that our kids are being bombarded with every day that us adults are being bombarded with. It's God. That's why 1 Timothy 6 says godliness with contentment is great joy. Godliness with contentment. E, lastly, you see when you read the Old, Old Testament, God promises forgiveness if you repent. And at the same time, he promises judgment if you do not repent. Listen to me. We, we live in a world that wants to just stop at half that story. God promises forgiveness if you repent. But guess what? He offers at the same time judgment if you do not repent. In 1 Peter 4, 17, listen to what it says. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will the outcome, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
If God is going to deal with his own people first, he's saying, what do you think the outcome is going to be for those who do not know him? Those who have not had their sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 2, listen to what it says in Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and every disobedience received a just penalty. That's what you see when you read the Old Testament. You see God doing that. Listen to what he says. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If God was, if God was faithful to discipline them, what do you think he's going to do to us who have Christ? Who have the fullness of this word right in front of us? Who have the full picture the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. If the Old Testament saints didn't escape discipline, you and I are not going to escape discipline. That's what he's saying. The Bible teaches us about God. He is the hero of Scripture. It teaches about His character. A.W. Tozer said this, What you believe about God is the most important thing someone can say about you. What you believe about God is the most important thing someone can say about you. And what you live, how you live, tells us what you think about your God. The reason passages like this are great is because we, and the whole Old Testament is this, we learn from Israel's mistakes. And we have hope. We see a God who is faithful to His people no matter what. We see devastation and judgment from pursuing sin or trying to fit in with the world, trying to be like everyone else, if that's you today, repent. Repent. God is faithful to forgive if we confess our sins. Pursue the one true God no matter what it costs. Seek loyalty to the king and his kingdom above all else no matter what it costs. Pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Why? Because you'll get God. I pray that we will be a people who desire what will last. Blessing and favor from God. While at the same time we continue to pray for our nation and seek God's mercy and His grace. We pray for wisdom for our leaders. We pray for godliness. But it starts with us. There's no magical formula for revival. It's God's people day by day by day by day seeking His face and His presence and living out that by the Holy Spirit living in us and God using that to change people around us. But either way, listen, this is not our home. Heaven is our home. This is not our kingdom. We have, we have a land that is coming to us that Paul says in Romans 8.18 that the prey is so awesome that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory of that is to be revealed in us. Hang in there, church.